Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And please be sure to follow Joe and I on social media, primarily Facebook and YouTube. But if you look up the front line with Joe and Joe, you'll see us guys there Um, and hit uh, the subscribe button, like, share, notifications, all that fun stuff. That all helps. And today we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Dr. Gerard Vashurin. And we are going to be discussing his new book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. For those of you who do not know, uh, Dr. Vashurin is a scientist, writer, speaker, and consultant working at the interface of science, philosophy, and religion. He is a human geneticist who earned a doctorate in the philosophy of science and studied and worked at universities in both Europe and the United States. Dr. Gerard Vershuren, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. Hi, Joe and Joe. Nice to be talking to you. Excellent. Doctor, I love your name. I have a son named Gerard. I, I liked you immediately. I love oh. it. I thought you you liked my last name. <laughs> That's a tough one. Uh, yeah. That is a tough one. But Gerard is a wonderful name. It's named. It's a, bu- a beautiful Italian saint. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. 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 I was named after him. Awesome. Yeah. We'll start with a prayer, uh, Doctor. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother, the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Dr. Vashur, and here's the thing. We want to talk about the Shroud. That's why our audience is tuning in, because you wrote the book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. But we want to get into a scientific question first. Dr. Vashur, Joe and I are troublemakers. We like to make trouble, okay? particularly for atheist scientists. So we'd love it because you are a scientist and philosopher, okay? We'd love it if you would just dispel for our audience this idea that's being perpetrated, has been perpetrated now for a long time by people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens when he was alive, Daniel, excuse me, Daniel Dennett and people like that. They claim Peter Atkins, they claim that all we need is science, no need for philosophy, no need for religion, because we're going to be talking about your view as a scientist on the Shrouded Turin. Do us a favor and demolish that argument for our audience that that's all we need is science to know all there is to know. Yes, it's a, it's a very common idea nowadays. Um, when you ask people in, uh, let's say, in, uh, in schools, in the media, 
what is the most important thing why you don't believe anymore? And they will say science. And they come up with the Big Bang and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and let's face it, uh, the, the Schout of Turin got the biggest blow from scientists when they did the carbon test. So do we have to believe what they claim? I don't think so. And I show in my book that I have no reason to believe what they said, that the shroud is very recent. What is the problem with people who think that science has all the answers? Well, it doesn't. Uh, first of all, um, science has a lot of presuppositions assumptions. Uh, you have to assume that we can understand the world, that the world has cause and effect relationships. Uh, it, we have to believe that uh, our experiments work, that our uh, senses are more or less reliable. So where do those assumptions come from? Science cannot prove them on its own. It has to assume them before it even can get started. So that is another important reason why scientism, the people who claim that science is the only thing that is uh, credible, can work, have a, a, a poor foot to stand on. Um, I, I could give many reasons. In the book, I, I mention a few in the first chapter, but let, let's mention at least one more. Science has a, has a powerful tool. I, uh, I have to acknowledge that. Science can do quite a bit for us. But there's one thing it cannot do. It cannot prove its own assumptions, as I said already. It can also not prove that its tools are the only ones there are. If, if you have a, a metal detector, you, you cannot claim that the metal detector can discover everything. It can only detect metals. So one of the things that's Science can detect is material things. Immaterial things are beyond its reach. So, of course, you can say they don't exist. Yeah, that is the cheap solution. But there are certain things that do exist. And besides, assumptions are not material things. So, science needs immaterial things. If I cannot believe my own convictions, what am I worth? And another important reason is, if everything is explained by science, then we have to also face the fact that uh, everything is worth what science is worth. If everything is a matter of DNA, which scientists will easily say, then our convictions, our beliefs and everything is worth as much as DNA. And DNA, as we will see with the shroud, can get defragmented very easily. After centuries, there is hardly anything left of DNA because it's a material entity. So um, bacteria attack it and, and they break down. So I need for my truths, and science claims truth, that my truth is really truth and not just a matter of molecules. If it's a matter of molecules, I am trying to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And I have tried that many times in my life, but I have never succeeded. And I think people who say science is everything, they are pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's Good a luck. Good analogy. 
Thank you. Thank you very much for that, doctor, because that's one of those common things that we hear. And because you are not only a scientist and a philosopher, we wanted your take on that. So with that, let's talk about the shroud. I'm going to hand it over to Joe. Doc, uh, for our listeners benefit, could you give us some background on the history of the shroud, how it was discovered, when it was discovered, et cetera, just to set the stage for uh, the deeper discussion? Let, let me compare my um, my historical analysis with what the, the carbon test came up with. Okay. It dated it between 1260 and 1390 in between. With, scientists like to say with a 95% confidence level. Okay, that's fine. But let's say 1200 is the, the, the earliest date. Well, we have a lot of records, historical records. Do they exist? Oh yeah, they do. Uh, are they worth anything? Some scientists will say no, because they are not material. Yes, they are material. We have letters that were written and we have drawings that people made up at a certain time. So where did the shroud come from? Uh, we know now it's in Turin. And, and you both have an Italian background, so you probably like to say Torino. Torino, that's... <laughs> okay, that sounds good. You say it much better than I can. So we, uh, yeah, I have a, a son-in-law who, uh, who has an Italian background too, and I always tease him with that. I said, can you pronounce it, please? And, uh, he comes with that, that rolling R that I don't have. Torino, as you just said. So we find it there in... 1578. How, how do we know it was there? Because we have records, archives, that tell us that it was brought there. And where did it came from? From Chambéry in France. Sorry, I'm leaving Italy now. So we are now in France. In 1453, Chambéry had the shroud. And it's mentioned by uh, friends and enemies. So there is no doubt you can contest that one. Uh, then, where did it come from before? It came from Lyrie in France. 1356, we know that there was, there was even a bishop at that time who, uh, who, who mentioned that there was a shroud like that, but he thought that it was a fake. Why? Because it was very popular at that time to make, uh, you know, copies of things. So they were painted. They were not real things. I maintain that the shroud is a real thing. So how, how do I know that? Because it came from all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, that beautiful sea. It came from Constantinople. Constantinople is, um, let's say, at, at the borderline between uh, Europe and, uh, and Near East. And we find it in Constantinople at 1204. We have drawings from that time. We have letters from people who said, hey, we have seen in Constantinople a shroud that was pulled up every other month or every other week. It depends on whom you believe the most. But it was in Constantinople, 1204. That means it was already before the carbon dating that those scientists had come up with, in the name of science, with the authority of science. So do we have to believe them? No, we don't. But the 1204, <coughs> excuse me, is a, a definite date. Where did it come from in Constantinople? It came from Edessa. Edessa is a town nowadays in Turkey, and it was there already in 544. How do we know it's the same shroud? 
because the descriptions and the drawings that were made of it show us that it was a real shroud. Some people say yeah, it was only the face of Jesus. No, it was folded that way. We know that the shroud was folded. We have, with computer analysis, we can even find the creases where the shroud was folded. So Edessa is the, the point at 544. That is quite a while ago. It was before you and I were born. And, so, sure. and it sounds a little bit before the 13th century too, but continue please, doctor. Oh yeah, it, it's definitely before that time. So that's why I say you cannot ignore those historical records. Of course, those those carbon testers do because they have that narrow narrow mind that says only carbon testing is real scientism but th there are many other tools in life than there is more than a metal detector so we uh, we have a history that starts at least at 544 how did it come to Edessa, it's, uh, and now it gets a little more murky, I must agree with that. I would say it came from Jerusalem. And why do I think so? Because we have to realize that we have nothing left from Jesus. He, uh, he was resurrected, so we don't have a body. We have no relics of Jesus. We only have that shroud. So for the the first Christians, that was a very important thing that they venerated, actually. That's all they had from Jesus. We have nothing else. I, I, I joke sometimes. I say uh, uh, everything that we know about Jesus is basically what we know through the Eucharist. The host is Jesus. But other than that, we have nothing except the shroud. And we don't even have the stone that Jesus didn't have to put his head on. That's a joke. <laughs> so we don't have anything from him. So the first Christians were very eager to save that record. I, I think it's even mentioned already in one of St. Paul's letters. He's one of the first Christians, of course. When he, in the letter to Timothy, the second one, he says, when you come, he says to his friend, Timothy, please bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Well, what is that cloak? In Greek, that is a word that can be translated as garment. So it was probably already the famous shroud that we say now, the shroud of Turin. That was one of the first indications that that shroud was already there. How did it get to Edessa? That was the point we, we started with. Well, in, in, it was given to the, the, a king of Edessa very early in history, probably in the year 40 or 50. We, we have records of that, so it is not just fantasy. Sorry, this, this was a long story, but it was also a long journey for the Shroud. No, it's very good. I, I mean, obviously, uh, the Shroud is one of the holiest and mo most important relics in Christianity. And you mentioned, obviously, too, with everything, they're skeptics. You mentioned the carbon dating. That's one of the biggest arguments they have. What is the church's position today on the Shroud? That's 
that is uh, not easy to answer that question. So I wish you wouldn't have asked that question. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm glad you apologize. <laughs> so it's a, the, the problem is a little bit that the church has never made a clear point on all of this. Even Pope John Paul II, Saint John Paul II, he was a, I can't say ambiguous, but he always spoke of an icon. And we know icons, especially from the Orthodox Church, they are beautiful, but they are not a real thing. They are paintings. So I maintain that this shroud is a relic. It has the real image of the real Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. So why is Pope John Paul so so careful? He he had still been baffled by the dispute about Galileo. Sorry, I have to bring in another Italian. <laughs> Galileo was, was yeah, 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 he had to fight the church. At least he thought he had to. So Pope John Paul II said, we, we have to be careful. Heliocentrism, the sun in the center, was what science told us. Uh, yeah. But the, the, the funny part is that Galilee, I could never prove his theory that the sun was in the center. So the claim of, uh, of Galileo was not very clear. But anyway, well, John Paul II said we, we have to be careful. The, the, the church cannot declare heliocentrism a dogma, a, a, a creed, a belief of the church. We have to leave that up to science. So when science told him in 1988, more than 30 years ago already, um, that uh, the shroud was not that old. He, uh, yeah, he, he went a little bit with what science says. I, I didn't say he declared that a dogma, but he said, yeah, we have to be careful. We learned from the Galileo case, case please stay in your own territory. And that he did. So he was always careful. And he talked about the icon. Pope Benedict followed him in that terminology. They always used the word icon. Uh, the current Pope mentions one time uh, the word relic. I thought good for him. So he, uh, he had at least the courage to avoid that word icon. I just want to say, Dr. Vashorn, Dr. I just want to say one thing, though, real quick. You, you Basically, what you're saying is Pope John Paul II said to stay in your lane, okay? Let's just, let's take him at his word. What I wish is that scientists would stay in their lane. See, because scientists are not philosophers, okay? That's right. um, the, the, um, the scholar and mathematician David Berlinski basically said flat out, Richard Dawkins is a crummy philosopher. Those are his words, not mine. Science, oh, yes. you mentioned history. You were talking about the, 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 uh, how we can apply our reason when we look at history to look at, let's say, for argument's sake, the origins of the shroud. Scientists don't have anything to say about that. Scientists don't have anything to say about philosophy. What they do do, doctor, and this is where Joe and I get a little cheesed off, is when they try to say that philosophy is not needed or history is not needed. My larger point is then we should listen to St. John Paul II. I'll tell the scientists, stay in your lane. Let the philosophers do what they do. Let the theologians do what they do. But you guys ought to stay in your lane, particularly when it comes to things that they know nothing about, generally speaking. I, I wish what you just said, I had said. It's fantastic. <laughs> I, I agree fully. They should both stay in their lane. But scientists tend not to do that 
because of, you mentioned it right at the beginning of this show, scientism. They think they know everything and they declare everything in the name of science and with the authority of science. What they don't realize is that the authority of science is very limited. So you you are right, Pope John Paul should have said, hey, those people, the, the, the three that declared that the shroud is not older than 1200, uh, they should have said, sorry, we, uh, we can't really claim this, but we think that's the case. And then we would have a much clearer discussion. And nowadays, especially in my book, I tell them what they did wrong. They were completely off the wall when they made that claim. And in my book, I go into many arguments to show that their claim is not based on science, but on an ideology. And that book, by the way, for our audience, if you're just joining us, was written by Dr. Gerard Verschuren. It is a Catholic scientist, uh, a Catholic scientist champions the Shroud of Turin. Joe, I know you wanted to get into some of the science. Yeah, let's get into the science itself. The skept- and, and let's like meet the, the skeptics head on, doctor. I mean, uh, obviously, in your book, you talk about um, DNA, you talk about blood, you talk about pollen, you talk about textiles. Could, could we get into some of those uh, discussions for our listeners? I think people will find them interesting because, frankly, I think they uh, basically show some hardcore evidence here. Oh, yes, definitely. I'm glad you mentioned it because we, um, I I would like to start, if I have a say on this, with textile analysis. The the textile of the linen uh, is is another indication that that carbon dating was not correct. Why do I find the textile analysis so important? Because we, we found the pattern of the shroud has a very specific uh, characteristic. First of all, the shroud was a linen made of hand-spun flax. Uh, It was expensive. It's a linen thread. And uh, you know know that um, the uh, Joseph of Arimathea was was a rich Jew. And he brought the material, he bought the material for that stuff. And it's very fine linen. And that pattern, why is that so important? Because the a famous analysis for this showed that the, the textile had a certain pattern that we only find around the first century of our um, counting uh, stage. So that was around the time that Jesus was born and was crucified and was died and resurrected. That, um, that pattern we only find in the first century and before, but not much later. So that expert on textile analysis found out that that same pattern was found in Masada. Masada was a, 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 a mountain in Israel that the Jews fled to when the Romans were attacking Jerusalem. And so Masada is from that time period. And the, the linens, the cloths we know from Masada have that same weaving pattern. And 
then besides, she also found out, it was a she who did that, Florie Lemberg from Switzerland, she found out that they had the same pattern as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are very old. They are even older than the first century. They were already there before Jesus was born. And they, they are sometimes in the linen wrappings that have that same pattern that we do not find on any linens after that time period. I would say, how much more evidence do you need to say that that is very convincing? No matter what the carbon dating says, which is, is very, um, very uh, disputable, um, there is evidence that it's a very old shroud. And besides, uh, uh, chemists have found out that the vanillin levels that you find in this kind of linen, they break down over time. And we find hardly any vanillin anymore, or nothing actually, on the Shroud of Turin. So it must be very old, it, uh, uh, no matter what the carbon dating says. I think that's a very important thing. Can scientists ignore this? No, for this is science too. But can we ignore what the carbon dating said? I think so, yes, for there are a lot of pitfalls there. I'm sure you want to go into that later. But before we do that, I would like to go also to the other information that we find in pollen analysis. Please. Are you ready for that? Or do Absolutely. You we have a, and, and, and doctor, just so you know, we have about three to four minutes before the break. So just to give you a heads up. So I have to talk very quickly. No, no, that's okay. Keep it your same pace. I'll give you. I'll give you a heads we'll up. We'll go on the other it, side. We got. We got much more time to discuss. Okay. So pollen. Pollen. You know, I, I assume that most people know what what pollens are. They are uh, plants produce them, and then the wind spreads them, or insects spreads them, and they, uh, they 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 make sure that the plant gets somewhere else and can start something. So from very early time on, actually 1973, uh, there were there was pollen analysis. They examined the shroud and they took tapings from it because they were not allowed to really touch the shroud very much. And under the microscope, they found all kinds of pollens. And, and, and pollens, you can determine a little bit from which kind of plant they come, which species of plant they come. And they found so many that came from, of course, Lyrie in France and Chambéry in, uh, in France and Turin. But they also found pollens that are particular for the Dead Sea area and for Turkey. Uh, that is not only done by Christian botanists, but also by Jewish botanists. And they found 28 species of pollen that are unique to Jerusalem. So somehow the shroud must have been there long ago, according to our historical records. But again, that is science too. And it's science that goes against the data, the date carbon testing that we discussed before, and that was so detrimental to the authenticity of the shroud. I think it, it's time to recover from all of this information. How about the blood, doctor? We got about two minutes. How about the blood? 
Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical about the blood analysis, at, at least, which is important to know. It, it's real blood that we found on the stains of the shroud. We know that because there is iron in it. And iron is a component of hemoglobin, and hemoglobin is a component of red blood cells. So is that um, important to know? Yeah. So first of all, it shows that the shroud is not a painting. In other words, it's not an icon. It's a relic. And uh, because it's not a painting, I give in the book many reasons to uh, why it is not a painting. And I don't want to give them away. You have to read the book. Got to go buy the book. A Catholic scientist champions the Shroud of Turin. One fascinating um, thing I saw, I forgot the gentleman's name. He's a Jewish uh, scientist and I think believe in the late 70s. He's a skeptic. And he went down with a group of people to analyze the shroud. And it's funny that you said that about the blood and, and paint. He said, and he goes in front of audiences. I forgot his name, but he goes in front of audiences. He said, hey, when I got there, the first thing I said was, all right, let me see this thing. I'll show you that it's paint and then we could all go home. And that guy has done the scientific analysis that you're talking about. And, you know, he's not a Christian. It hasn't caused this conversion, but he believes the shroud is, is authentic. Interesting. He, he believes the shroud is authentic because he thought he was going to see paint. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, doc, we'll come back on the other side of the break. Uh, I, I would, uh, before we get into the rest of the conversation, would like to, for you to just discuss briefly when we come back the, 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 the light or, or the analysis that shows how the light or, or the, how the threads of the shroud itself burst outwards rather than inwards. I'm sure you're familiar with that, which suggests that let's say the light emanated from inside the shroud outwards, um, if you want to, but we'll talk about that more. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello, we're talking with Dr. Gerard Vershuren about his book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. Um, Doc, real quick, where can people buy the book? We'll mention it again later. Uh, Amazon.com, of course, but also at Sophia Institute Press, sophiainstitute.com and just look for uh, yeah, sorry for my last name or look for the Shroud of Turin and it will show you the book that we have been talking about during this show. Alright and we'll take a break right now. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello on the Veritas Catholic Network 1350 on your AM dial serving the New York metropolitan area. We will be back in a couple of minutes. Catholic Radio Works and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Way, way, way in the breach. We're talking about a Catholic scientist champions the Shroud of Turin. That's the book, and its author is Dr. Gerard Vershuren. We're talking about the Shroud of Turin. We're talking about the errors of scientism. Doc, I was going to ask you a question about the light in the Shroud. We don't have enough time because there's so much meteor thing, so we'll move on from there. I'll hand it to Joe Resinello. Before we, we continue with the conversation, I'm just interested, Doctor, what drew you to this? I mean, obviously, you're a learned man. Um, you, you've written a number of books. What 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 drew you to this this uh, research? 
I, I have always been fascinated by the Shroud of Turin. And I must say, when I heard the carbon test results, I, I felt that was a little bummer until I learned more about that carbon test, which we, which we will go into very soon, I'm sure. So I, uh, I said, there is something about that shroud. Uh, it has so much of a surprise for us. I think its best surprise is that it's more and more likely to be the shroud of Jesus that survived persecutions, fires, mishandling, and scientific scrutiny. And it's not easy to fight scientific scrutiny, but it survived, it survived. And that has always intrigued me. What is the power of that shroud that we, uh, and that many of us are not aware of? So you, uh, you mentioned the blood analysis also. We talked already about the historical features, uh, the, uh, um, the textile analysis, the pollen analysis, another important information people think is the blood analysis. Of course, there are always people that deny what they find. They are, they are looking for evidence that it's not real. And yeah, it's like as atheism. Atheists will try everything to prove that God does not exist, even if they don't have a foot to stand on. They, they look for it and they don't like the picture of this world with God in the center. So if they don't like God, they probably don't like the Schout of Turin, for that was the relic of the Son of God. So they will try everything and they are skeptical. Uh, skepticism doesn't get us anywhere. It doubts everything uh, and it never reaches a goal. It, it only says, no, it's not this, it's not that, and it's not that. But they have nothing positive to say. So with the, the blood analysis, I am, uh, I am a little bit uh, ambivalent myself. I know there is hemoglobin in those and marks and those patches on the on the shroud. There is definitely a, a blood involved, and, and and that that cannot really be painted. Yeah, it can be painted, but if you use real blood for it, that that clots very fast. So you have to paint very quickly. <laughs> but anyway, that is another thing. The chemical tests show that it is indeed blood, and, but then people go a little haywire and they say, was it the blood of Jesus? There is no way blood can prove that. First of all, I always maintain science can't prove anything anyway, but it can make it more and more likely, highly confident that it's true. So they, they look for all kinds of genes that they find in that blood, and they found a gene that is located on the Y chromosome. So that means it was a man. Yeah, there's nothing new about that. We know that. So uh, I, I was not very impressed by that. And then they go a little farther even. They say he had type AB blood. I've heard that as well. Yeah. Uh, what is that word worth? Not much, because uh, the antibodies that are made against those antigens are, are very degradable. They, they can disappear very quickly because they can be broken down by bacteria and everything. So eventually, if you wait long enough, all blood 
would turn out to be AB, and Ries is negative. So, but even if it were true, so what? I, I don't really care about Jesus's blood type. Uh, sorry to say it that way and that bluntly, but so what? Uh, we, we don't know what Jesus' real blood type was, so how can we say this must be his blood? There is no way we can do that. There are many other indications. I think, I think the most important one is that we find wounds on his top of his head. So that they, those were left behind by the thorn of the crown of thorns. We, we know of many crucifixions. That was a very common procedure in the Roman Empire. It was like, um, yeah, sorry for the comparison, but like, uh, you know, uh, de de declaring everything to death as punishment for your uh, crimes. That was very common at a certain point. So crucifixion was very common. But we never found records about anyone crucified with a crown on his head. The fact that this person did have wounds on the top of his head tells us, I think that is a much stronger argument for the fact that this was Jesus Christ and not someone else who was crucified. So that is much stronger than blood types and stuff like that. And besides, that is my last point on this issue, um, we don't know anything about the blood type of Mother Mary, Jesus' mother, or his relatives. So I, I don't think it makes much sense to spend energy on that kind of blood analysis. You know, doctor, obviously I'm not a scientist, but what I have heard, and, and please, if I'm wrong, please correct me. Um, I heard what you just stated that the blood found in the testing of the shroud was AB, but I've also heard in some Eucharistic miracles uh, regarding, um, obviously we believe that the, the, you know, Christ is fully present in, in the Eucharist. They've bleeding of the host miracles where that blood is a B as well. I've heard that, it, you know, am I wrong in that? No, I, I don't know enough about it. I have to be honest, but uh, I, I, I can see that point. Yeah. And, and, and then we have a little more evidence that Jesus was also AB negative. Yeah, but, I just put my scientist hat on, Doc. I'm clearly not a scientist, but I've heard that. I've heard that basically it was heart tissue that mm -hmm. was identified in some Eucharistic miracles, and the blood type was AB, which links to the blood type in the shroud. Yeah, oh, that, that's great. If Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's a good point. Doc, I, I want to uh, – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I just want to say I uh, I don't know enough about that, so I don't know how much uh, that is worth in scientific terms. Yeah, sorry, I sound like a... Uh, no, that was the Jersey scientist. That was just me being from yeah, New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> he's called he's called Dr. Jersey Joe. <laughs> uh, Dr. Dr. Vashorn. He will give you a Nobel Prize soon. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully soon. Uh, Dr. Vashorn, uh, talk about the coins. Um, I never heard this. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> no, no. Actually, we're going to switch gears from that. I, what I want to talk about, actually, is you, you, um, 
you in the book, you kind of say that some of the scientists veer from scientism the, into scientism. They draw conclusions outside their competence because, like you said, that there were what's it called? Um, they had ulterior motives. They they didn't go in yep. like trying to prove it. Correct. They had ulterior motives, and that that, that makes them suspicious, of course. Uh, uh, so their claims are suspicious. And again, they will always keep fighting that. You know, I, I, I just that I veer off a little bit, but I am a big fan of the proofs of God's existence. St. Thomas Aquinas came up with that. You prayed to him at the beginning of your show, and rightly so. He, uh, he had proofs of God's existence. And when you analyze those proofs, then let's mention one, the proof of motion or causes, you cannot really beat that. Uh, I analyzed them in one of my other books. Uh, I'm not trying to sell another book, but uh, no, I'm, please. But I sell away, sell away, doctor. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm just showing in my book, the, in that other book, Catholic Science is proof that God exists. Uh, there is no way you can attack the logical power of those arguments. They are not scientific arguments. They are philosophical, logical arguments. But every single line in those arguments has been attacked by atheists. And, and when you analyze their attacks, they, they have misunderstood what Thomas Aquinas said, or they, they, they just are not willing to go with those proofs. As St. Thomas Aquinas himself said, the um, um, Unbelief is sometimes not in the intellect, but in the will. Mm. The intellect knows that the proofs are right, but the will is not willing to accept that. Expand for doctor for one second on that. The, Joe and I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but this is very important. I mean, obviously we're going back and forth between scientism and the shroud, and we emphasize to everyone out there, please go out and buy Dr. Vershoren's book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin, which you can purchase on Amazon.com um, and uh, Sophia Institute Press. And to remind you, you're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. Please let's talk about this then, that being we're on the subject. We're in the breach. Let's go further into the breach. Joe and I are of the belief, okay, that you do not need faith to simply or merely believe in God. Now, revealed religion is a different story. The Trinity, the resurrection of Christ, the immaculate conception, whatever, that all requires faith. But it does not require, correct us if I, and if I'm wrong, please tell me. Logically, philosophically, it does not require faith to merely believe in the existence of God because something cannot come from nothing. And yet, even science tells us in the beginning there was nothing. And yet you just said that they come up with very creative ways, not because of their intellect or their reason, but because of their unwillingness to accept that basic premise that for the universe to exist, that there has to be a God that created that universe. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the science cannot say anything uh, about what happened before the, the famous Big Bang event. The Big Bang is a scientific issue. And the, so many scientists say, what was before the Big Bang? Unfortunately, you cannot ask that question because without creation by God, there would not be space and time. Even 
the famous Albert Einstein said, space and time are part of the physical world. So where did they come from? Not from the Big Bang. The Big Bang cannot create its own course. Uh, so where did the Big Bang come from? Not from another physical, chemical part. So it had to come from somewhere else. Before we can talk about before the Big Bang, we can't really talk about that because if there is no space and time, there is no before. God lives outside space and time. We used to say he is all present, all powerful, and almighty. So when uh, the, the, the famous Hawkins, the, 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 the astronomist, not Hawking, sorry, not Hawkins, but Hawking, when he, uh, when he said what happened before the Big Bang, he was basically a poor philosopher. He, uh, he was talking about something that could not exist because it was not there yet. Where did space and time come from? They, they did not come from themselves. That would be real magic. So only the religion can tell us where God came from. It was an, a famous conflict between Einstein and the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church always said, uh, maybe not explicitly, but certainly since the 12th century, that uh, God created everything up from nothing, out of nothing. So Einstein could not accept that, first of all, because he was not a Christian. And he was not, he was a believer, but a, a dubious kind of believer. So he, um, he didn't accept that. He said, the universe is eternal. So when the famous Father Lemaitre, the man who, who, who basically was the first one to mention the Big Bang, though he didn't use that word, but he, he said there was a, uh, an event at the beginning of the universe that we all came from. It expanded and expanded and expanded in time and in space. There are time and space again. But where did the time and space come from? Father Lemaitre would say he was a priest and a, a great astronomer and a great physicist. He said, yeah, th that is from creation. But where did the Big Bang come from? Einstein said, nonsense. And he, uh, he did not believe anything that Father Lemaitre said, though he liked the man and they spoke to each other. Finally, Einstein was honest enough to say that was one of the biggest mistakes I could have ever made. That I ignored that our Father Lemaitre was correct. So there was no conflict between the two. Though some people like to say there was a conflict, but mm. there wasn't. So Father Lemaitre was very clear on that. And he said, before the Big Bang, there was creation. And creation was out of nothing. And then scientists have tried to say, no, the Big Bang came out of, and then they came up with things like uh, tunneling events, physical events. But science cannot talk about nothing. The nothing that's religious people talk about is really nothing. Something that did not exist yet. But when 
scientists talk about nothing. They are talking about a vacuum or they are talking about uh, absence of particles. The, that is not really nothing. There is already something. I, I always use the famous image to explain that from Stephen Barr. He is a famous uh, particle physicist. He always said, when I have a, a bank account, that is quite something. I have to go to a bank and open the account. Uh, but if there is no money in it, he was talking on my behalf, I think, <laughs> if there is no money in it, it's still a bank account. So when we talk about a vacuum, there may be no particles in it at that point, but there are all kinds of field forces in it. And that is not nothing. So the nothing that people like Hawking talked about, and then a few other atheists from physics, that's not nothing. So there is only nothing in the church's understanding when there is nothing in space and time yet because there was no space and time yet. I want to hand it over to Joe. I know he has a question, but I do want to say one of those other atheist scientists you're talking about is Lawrence Krauss. And for our audience to know, okay, this is this is why we have to be skeptical of them. Okay, he made the statement: nothing to a scientist is not the same as nothing to a non-scientist. Which we could go on for hours about that statement. Nothing to put a finer point on it is nothing. The absence of anything, whether it's vacuum, whether it's law, whether no matter what it is, if it's nothing, it's nothing, whether you're a scientist or you're a truck driver. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, doctor, we, we interviewed Rick Delano uh, a while ago, and he did uh, he put together a movie on Wolfgang Smith, Dr. Wolfgang Smith. He was a brilliant man, a physicist and a philosopher. Um, and they talk about which I'd like to discuss with you a little bit, the complementarity of science and faith. Sadly, today, a lot of people don't believe that you can mix those two. I would disagree. Um, you, you said earlier that basically science cannot prove anything in an absolute fashion. Absolutely. I personally, this is my opinion, and then we can get into that larger discussion, but I actually think why many times scientists have issue with things like the shroud or even with faith them itself is it can't, there, there requires faith. You can't, it's not mathematical. It's not like two plus two is four. These are brilliant people. I actually think what's getting in the way isn't the science, but it's pride. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a PhD. Um, I have a PhD in common sense. I'm from New Jersey. That's how we roll. <laughs> oh, but at good. the same time, I, you know, there are many things I'll admit to you. Um, I don't understand and I don't know. Um, but sadly, I think sometimes people who are very brilliant, uh, it's it's not science that's the problem. It's their pride. They just can't say, I can't determine this. There is no way to determine it. So therefore, I will not believe it because I can't figure it out. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you about the distinction between science and religion. I, I, I May I put it a little differently? Um, Science is about material things, about natural things. Religion is about supernatural things. So I can't use scientific tools, which are for natural things, for supernatural things. Uh, I, I cannot use 
uh, earthly truths and mix them with heavenly truths. And I, I don't like to, to mix them together. Some, some scientists do. I, I must say, Schmidt that you mentioned before, he, in my opinion, he mixes things a little bit too easily. You, before, if I may use your terminology, stay in your own lane. I love it. <laughs> and, yeah, stay in your own lane and, and, and let uh, religious people be religious and let uh, scientific people be scientific. And if there seems to be a conflict, then there is a, a misunderstanding on one side or maybe on both sides. So the, like we discussed before, is there a conflict between uh, the Big Bang and creation? No, if you stay in your right lane then you will see science can talk about the Big Bang. Religion cannot talk about the Big Bang. Yeah, they can talk about it, but they don't really know anything about it. Um, but they know everything about creation. And you cannot just deny that. For I can even say that science is not possible without certain convictions that I called at the beginning the assumptions of science. There are assumptions. I cannot prove that every... Uh, effect has a cause. I cannot prove that ever that there is order in the universe. I cannot prove that. Uh, if I find an exception, then somehow my ideas were wrong. Uh, I cannot prove that this world is intelligible. Um, as Einstein always said, the most um, um, the most perplexing part is that we can understand nature. That is really amazing when you think about it. So anyway, I could use many more examples, but I think uh, uh, most people will be asleep by now. But would you would you agree that it's one of those things that like you said, you can't prove the universe is intelligible. It's just something that's a given because it is intelligible to us. Ergo, the universe is intelligible. I don't have to prove that under a microscope or looking through a telescope or doing a scientific experiment. It's just a given. It obviously is because we know that we can perceive nature. We can analyze nature. It is intelligible to us. Yes. I don't I don't know, you know, sometimes, you know, where the, where the stumbling block there. Well, again, I think Joe's exactly right. And this is where it does get to be religious. Okay. Um, it's, it's in, their pride. If you, I've spent a lot of time, a lot, maybe too much time, Doctor Vershorn, over the last fifteen years, uh, listening and analyzing what those like uh, Dawkins and Dennett and and uh, Lawrence Krauss and Peter Atkins have to say. A lot of times, it just seems to me they don't want to see it. It's not that they don't see it; they don't okay. want to see it. Correct. They don't want to see it. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, the, the, the unbelief is not in the intellect most of the times, but in the will. The, and so the will does not want to use the intellect to see that that is false or that it's true. And that is it's pretty sad. So I, I always say don't spend too much time on that kind of people, but they, uh, they know how to toot their horn. Yes, they know? do. And unfortunately, they have a little bit too much influence. Doctor, I'm sorry to cut you off. We got about four and a half minutes left, but we want to talk to you about one final question about the shroud. Basically, obviously, as believers in Jesus Christ, and all three of us are, um, we believe he resurrected from the dead. Is there any ties 
with the shroud to that resurrection? Like, like, has there been studies whereby Jill mentioned light emanating, you know, like any type of studies that could show uh, proof of that resurrection to say someone who doesn't believe? Yeah, I, I, I have heard about those trials. I, and I have studied them a little bit and I have decided not to put them in my book because I am, um, you know, I'm, I'm still a scientist. So I, 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 need, I, need, I need a little bit more than conjectures. And I, yeah, I, I, let me be a little blunt. I, I don't need science to prove that there is a resurrection. Amen. And, yeah. I'm with so, you. <laughs> you know, you know, as St. Thomas the Apostle said, I don't believe until I can put my fingers in his wounds. So we, we can basically put our fingers in the wounds of the relic of Jesus in the shroud. That, that is much more important for me to know that he was the person who was crucified for us. And by his crucifixion, he redeemed us. So that is more important to me than, than, than vague speculation. I call them speculations about, yeah, the, if, if we look at a certain way at the shroud, you can see that he was resurrected. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry. I, 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 no, I it's just a general much. question, because I've yeah. heard that argument put out there, uh, you know, and I, and I respect the fact you're staying in your lane. Um, it's your yeah. book is giving scientific evidence that the shroud is legit. And that's why people should buy it. Just going into scripture a little bit. I mean, you mentioned Joseph of Arimathea earlier, how he was a wealthy man and that the textile, which points, you know, to a very strong argument that the shroud is legit, that was expensive. What about Nicodemus buying the myrrh and the aloes? Was there any studies on that? I mean, that was in uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 19, verse 38. Anything to correlate to that? Doctor, we have about two minutes left, if you don't mind. Okay, I I will just wait for two minutes. (laughs) No, don't do that. Our audience wants to hear what you have to say. (laughs) No, I, 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 I want to make one careful remark. We have to realize that that those, uh, those, you know, were, and, and they were maybe on the shroud. But we also have to realize that the shroud was in a box for many, many centuries. There were two fires that that box was in. We, we don't know what that did to chemicals that, that were there. And, and, you know, chemicals for myrrh and that kind of, they are a little bit volatile. So what, what happened to them, even if we think we have found traces of myrrh uh, on the shroud, um, they have probably been changed by the fire. And um, be, because the fire was very damaging in a way. And even parts of the silver that the, the case had as an insight um, have damaged the shroud. So no wonder that the Vatican is very careful with that shroud. They, they say it's the only physical memory we have of Jesus. So let it be honored, adored, and protected. So they put it in a, in a case that protects it from outside temperature changes and all that kind of things. So all we can do about the shroud is, I would say, leave it 
in that protected case and not touch it much more. So that's why I'm not asking for a new carbon dating test. It, it, it should be done officially because the, 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 the piece of the cloth that they tested was at the edge. And, and the edge was a piece of linen that was later attached again to the main cloth. So it was exactly that side that we know from drawings that bishops and priests held up the shroud in a, in a horizontal way, and they put their hands on those uh, sides. So there is a lot of pollution and contamination of bacteria and fingers, and fingers have always dead cells on it. Doctor, so, we got to, I'm sorry to cut you off, Doctor, we're, 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 we've come to the end, so we're going to have to leave it there. For our audience out there, you want to hear the rest of this fascinating, fascinating conversation, go and buy Dr. Vashurin's book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. Um, Dr. Gerard Vashurin, thank you for coming on the front line with Joe and Joe. Thank you, dear brothers and sisters, for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, bringing the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area, 1350 on your AM dial. For all Veritas content, please be sure to download our Veritas Catholic Network mobile app and also follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube until they shut us down, of course. Like, subscribe, share, hit the bell, do all that fun stuff. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.